this morning, what kind of traditions we have. Let me ask you this. How many of you, because of circumstances this year, had to change your, your Christmas tradition, had to make some alterations to it? Yeah, we've got <laughs> quite a few. We, uh, our family, typically on Christmas Eve, um, Kathy makes, she makes these trays of, of meats and cheeses and veggies and cookies and all kinds of baked stuff. And on Christmas Eve, we come together as a family and typically we open gifts that people send us from the states, grandparents and, and whoever happens to send gifts from the states. Uh, we open those gifts on Christmas Eve and keep all the other stuff for Christmas morning. And then uh, Christmas morning we get up and we come together as a family and we read the Christmas story together and we pray and then we open our, our gifts that we give to each other and then have a big Christmas meal uh, for, for Christmas, Christmas noontime. Well, this year, our oldest daughter, she had to work Christmas Eve and Christmas Day both. So we kind of changed things around. On Christmas Eve, we opened all the gifts. <laughs> and then uh, uh, Christmas morning, we slept in. It was actually kind of nice. So <laughs> we may have started a new tradition <laughs> this year for our family. And then, uh, and then when Diane got home in the afternoon yesterday, while well, we had our big Christmas dinner. So, But uh, it's interesting how life is constantly changing. And how we constantly have to have to change as well. Last week, Tim, as we looked at the Christmas story, took us back to Isaiah. We went back in the Old Testament and we kind of looked at the Christmas story uh, as it was before it happened, but as it was being foretold. Well, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the Christmas story going forward. And I think the Hebrew or the writer of Hebrews does a magnificent job of telling us why Jesus had to come into this world as flesh and blood. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> so let's read through this this morning before I start. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm. And every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Verse 5. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the scriptures say... What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. 
but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. He also said, I will put my trust in him. That is, I and the children God has given me. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, this is a time of year when we come together as your people to celebrate Jesus becoming flesh and blood, becoming one of us. Father, I think oftentimes we don't really understand the powerful dynamic that took place when Jesus was born into this world. And I pray, Father, that through your word today, that you would speak to our hearts about not only what it means to us, but what it meant to you, what it meant to Jesus to come into this world a man one of us, that he would call us brothers and sisters, that he would know everything that we are experiencing right now this day, every temptation that we have, every pain, every suffering, every hurt, Jesus has experienced it. And Father, I pray that we will have a greater understanding of this Christmas story today through your word. Father, open our hearts and our ears to hear. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit right now. Speak to us, I pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I think the Hebrew writer here does a great job, maybe more than any other writer, of helping us to understand why Jesus had to become flesh and blood. In, in chapter 2 here, he talks about the fact that you and I, fallen mankind, needed a bridge or a mediator between ourselves and a holy and righteous God. And so, therefore, to help them to understand, to help the Jewish people to understand what was needed, the, the writer of Hebrews here, he refers to Christ continually as the high priest. Now, for the Jews, they would have immediately understood and knew exactly what the writer was talking about when he talked about a high priest. And every Jewish mind would have grasped that, that the whole meaning of that right away. But you and I, I don't think we understand what it truly means to have a high priest. I'm not sure we understand really in, in the mind of the Jewish person and, and, the, and the, 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 the intent of the writer of Hebrews when he talked about Jesus being a high priest, what that really means. So I want to kind of delve into that this morning, dive into that this morning. There are four qualifications of a high priest of which the Hebrew writer uh, tells the people that Jesus Christ actually met these four qualifications. And so I want to look at, at these this morning. The first qualification was that the high priest must be one of the people. In other words, he had to be one of them. He had to be a Jew. He had to be living with them, among them. He had to know them well. He had to know what, what their traditions were. He had to know what their lives were like every day. The high priest was identified. The people in the community would have recognized the high priest right away. But it would have been no doubt. So he became one of them, just as Jesus became one of us. The second qualification was that the high priest must be faithful in ministry. The high priest was to be very faithful to the duties that were required of him to fulfill that position, not only to God, but also to mankind, to the people that he lived among. He had to be faithful in his ministry to them as well. Third qualification was that he must be appointed by God. The high priest, not someone randomly or democratically chosen. They didn't vote on him. <laughs> he was chosen by God, appointed by God. The fourth qualification was that the high priest must be cleansed from all sin. Because one of his chief functions was to offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Now, I want you to think about each of these qualifications as we think about Jesus being born, a man being born flesh and blood this morning. So what the Hebrew writer is saying here is that Jesus became man to be the high priest for all of us and that he fulfills all four of these qualifications, not just for the Jew, but for you and I today. Jesus, he was, is 
as much of a high priest for the Jewish people as he is for you and I today. He became one of us. He became flesh so that he would live with us and identify with us and know us. Secondly, he was faithful to the Father in his ministry. As you know, Jesus always looked to his Father. Jesus oftentimes spoke of his obedience to the Father. He said, what, I, what the Father tells me to do is what I do. Thirdly, Jesus was appointed by God the Father to come into this world. And finally, Jesus was cleansed from all sin because he knew no sin at all. He was without sin. Hebrews to the New Testament is what Leviticus is to the Old Testament. What you think about that? We're going to look at that here this morning. Hebrews is to the New Testament what Leviticus was to the Old or is to the Old Testament. Now, as soon as a Hebrew writer lays this out about the high priest, he says, I want you to know four reasons why Jesus came into this world. And I want to look at those this morning. The first reason that he talked about there in chapter 2 was to recapture our lost identity. To recapture our lost identity. We no longer are what we were in the beginning of creation. And it's really neat how this ties in with what Pastor Tim has been preaching about out of Genesis. Jesus came into the world to recapture that lost identity for you and I. So let's start with verse 5. Let's go back to chapter 2, verse 5 real quick and take a look at this. It says, And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world we are talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. I love that. It means nothing is left out. When the writer here speaks of the Son of Man, he's not speaking of God. Many times the Son of Man is referred to as God, but not here. Not, not, uh, not with the Hebrew writer here. He's referring to you and I. He's referring to us as humans. In fact, when he said, what is man? What is man that you would remember him or the Son of Man that you are concerned about him? It's just a repeat of the same thing. In other words, the Son of Man is just us. It's just you and I. Simple mankind. In the book of Ezekiel, that was an expression. Son of Man in the Old Testament is an expression of mankind, not of the divine Son of God. In fact, in Ezekiel alone, God 80 times calls Ezekiel the Son of Man. And all the psalmist is saying in this passage that the Hebrews writer quotes is that, God, what are we? What are we and why are we so important that you would know us, that you would remember us, that you would love us so much that you would come and die for our sins? Well, it's very simple. 
Because in the very beginning, in creation, God had a plan for you and I. He had a plan for His people. And when Adam and Eve sinned, that plan fell through. You see, the plan and design for mankind when God created Adam and Eve was that they were to be dominant. They were to have dominion over everything. And the Hebrew writer emphasizes that. He says nothing, nothing was left out. Genesis 1.28, Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. In other words, they were to, they were to be kings. Kings and queens. They were to reign, to have dominion. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost that dominion. They lost that power. They lost that kingship. Whatever you can say about fallen mankind, what you really can say for certain is that man after the fall was never what he was intended to be before the fall when God created him to be dominant over everything on the earth. And I think we certainly experience that in our lives. I mean, we don't even have control over what takes place in our family oftentimes. We're not the kind of kings, we're not the, the kind of people that God intended for us to, to, to be. Let's go to verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9 says this. If I can find it here. There we go. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Into this situation, into this situation where Adam and Eve sin, God sends Jesus. And here's the story. I want us to see the picture. Adam and Eve sinned. They fell. They were not what they were designed or created to be or to become. They lost their position. And so into this situation, Jesus comes. And the Hebrew writer says that he comes into the world to begin to restore us back to that original position. And there are three basic ideas that are given to us in this verse. And I want to look at those. The first idea is that man was created to have dominion over all things. Okay, that's a fact. You and I were created to have dominion over everything. Nothing left out. Secondly, is that through sin, instead of dominion, we suffer defeat. Instead of dominion, we suffer defeat. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. They lost the privilege and the position that God had given them in the beginning. So through sin, instead of having dominion, we experience defeat. Thirdly, into this defeat enters Jesus and his purpose for coming. One of the four reasons was to restore us back, to give us dominion again over all things. And when the Hebrew writer begins to list the four reasons why Jesus came, he said, first of all, Jesus came into this world to recapture our lost identity. Now, remember, 
Our identity is in who? In Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Jesus recaptured that identity. Secondly, Jesus came to this world to experience our trials, our sufferings. He came to identify with us. He came to relate with you and I. He came to know what suffering was all about. And so, therefore, He came as a man. He came as a man so that He could undergo the sufferings, the trials, the temptations that you and I go through every day, if you're like me. <laughs> look at verse 10. Let's look at verse 10. And we're just going to kind of pick our way through here this morning. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that He should make Jesus, through His suffering, a perfect leader fit to bring them into their salvation. To bring us into salvation, to bring us into the rightful position. When, he, when Jesus speaks about the author of their salvation, He's speaking, of course, of God who is the head of our salvation. Of Jesus. But more than that, he's speaking about Jesus being a pioneer. The word author is a great word in the Greek. What it really means is to blaze a trail. To blaze a trail. It literally means to be the first to go through a wilderness or an area where there are a lot of trees or ruggedness and to blaze a trail so that you and I who come behind can have direction and can with confidence. We can go forward. We can follow that trail that Jesus has blazed for us. And so the Hebrew writer speaks of Jesus as being the author or the one who blazes this trail for you and I. And he says that it is for their salvation. It's for our, our salvation. Well, how does he do that? He does it through suffering. It was through suffering that Jesus was going to blaze a trail. In fact, it's a picture, a picture of God through Jesus Christ blazing a trail with His blood. How many of you are, are hunters? Any hunters in here? Any of you, any, anybody ever hunt deer? Anybody ever, <laughs> ever shot a deer? <laughs> I tell you, when you shoot a deer, I've only had one deer that, that, I hope I'm not offending anyone, but I'm a hunter. I grew up on a farm, so... <laughs> I've only had one deer that I've ever shot that ever dropped right where I right where I shot him, right where I hit him. Almost every deer that myself or my brother ever shot, we had to we had to trail it. And the way you trail a deer is by the blood trail. It is the only way that you can you can find your prey after you've shot him. And so, following that blood trail, I'm telling you, it is easy to find a deer when they leave a blood trail. And that's what Jesus has done for you and I. And, and literally, I want you to have that picture this morning. Here is a wounded Jesus, spear through his side, his blood dripping, leaving a trail for you and I to follow. That's the Christmas story. That's why Jesus came. The Hebrew writer here uses this word, author, 
knowing what it meant. It really, it literally means a pioneer. That Jesus blazed a trail for you and I. We follow His blood. That's the bottom line. We follow His blood. It was His blood that forgives us of our sins. It's His blood that literally blazes a trail for us, for you and I, to be the children of God. Three things a Hebrew writer is talking about here. He's talking about identification. Number one, identification. The fact that God would identify with you and me, that He would identify with us by becoming a man. You know, that's totally opposite of the Greek thinking. The Greek thought of God is as detached from mankind. When the Greek thought of God or a God, they thought of God way out there in the cosmos. But when Christianity came into being, when Jesus was born, a baby in this world, instead of the idea of detachment, it became an idea of identification and closeness. Emmanuel. God with us. The second thought here of the Hebrew writer is that is, is compassion. He was thinking about compassion. In other words, Jesus literally feels for you and I. That's why in verse 18 it says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he also suffered, he is able to come to the aid or come alongside those who are tempted. He identifies. He knows. He's been there. He's done that. And so he can identify. He has compassion for you and I. The third thought here is salvation. There had to be a high price paid for your sins and for my sins. And what we have to understand is that that high price was paid is that the only way, the only way that it could be paid was through Jesus. Not only coming into this world but also dying. And Tim talked last week about how he can't preach a Christmas sermon without talking about the cross of Christ. Because you see, it's not complete. And Christ makes it complete. He makes it whole. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But you know what? It was impossible. Think about that. It was impossible for that cup to pass from Jesus. There was no way that you and I could be saved except through Jesus. No way. Now, the ancient thought, the ancient mind, they thought that their mediator would be angels. And that's why the Hebrew writer here makes a very clear distinction that the angels have nothing to do with the world that is to come. And he talks a lot about angels throughout this chapter here in chapter 2. They thought angels. But no, angels could not be our mediator and our savior because the reason for that is that they did not become man. They did not and do not identify with you and I. They did, angels have not gone through what you and I go through. But Jesus did. Jesus has. And He has gone through it all. I want to take just a minute to look at suffering. 
There are three kinds of suffering that I want to talk about this morning, which I think relate very well to the redemptive plan of God so that you and I can help to under, understand more of Jesus identifying with us. The first kind of suffering is the kind that we can avoid. <laughs> we can avoid some types of suffering. I mean, that's just the truth. I think we all know that. Especially through making right choices. We've all suffered things that we didn't need to suffer because we have made wrong choices. Amen? Amen. I think everybody can agree to that. We could have avoided them if we just would have made the right choice. So there's a suffering that we can avoid. And for you young people sitting here this morning, oh my gosh, if I could give you a Christmas present this morning, it would be make right choices. Seek counsel. Believe it or not, mom and dad know some things. <laughs> We've suffered. <laughs> Sitting here shaking his head, no. <laughs> well, your mom and dad might not know anything. <laughs> no, your mom and dad know a lot, believe me. <laughs> but yeah, if I could give you a gift this morning, oh my gosh. There is so much suffering in this life you can avoid if you'll just make right choices. And any adult sitting around you can help you with that, believe me. But there's another kind of suffering. And that's the kind of suffering that you cannot avoid. You cannot avoid. That's the suffering that you and I experience. And it's not because we made wrong choices or right choices. It's because life is life. And we become a victim. And that's just... The harsh reality of, of what life is about. Maybe we were minding our own business. Maybe we were serving God faithfully. Maybe we were praying and disaster struck. And it had no rhyme or reason to it. It does not make sense. We couldn't avoid it. There is no way to avoid it because we live in a world of sin and suffering. There are times when we will suffer. And it's absolutely never because we made a wrong choice. It's just the suffering that we cannot avoid. But there's a third kind of suffering. And that's the suffering that we must not avoid. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a kind of suffering that we must not avoid. We must not run from it. We must not shy away from it. The suffering that we must not avoid is suffering that if we go through it, it will make us better. <laughs> In other words, it's good for us. Whoa. Ever thought about that? Suffering that is good for us. It's character development. It's good to round us out, to make us all that we need to be. It's the suffering and the trials that James talks about. And even Peter talked about that would make us more precious than gold when it is through. Make you and I more precious than gold. It's a suffering that we must not avoid. And it is important for us to go through this process. And I think oftentimes in our, in our walk with the Lord, this is an area that is really difficult, I think, for all of us. I mean, there are times when God is taking us through this refining fire 
that we don't want to go through it. And I think oftentimes we rebel. And I know in my own life I have been angry at God. And after I come through it, I can sit back and say, Oh, okay, now I get it. Now I get it. And again, for you young people, I want you to understand that uh, some of the suffering that you're going through, don't run from it. Embrace it if you can. And let God do a work in your heart and in your life. And that's where you need a family. You need a church. You need brothers and sisters that will come with you and alongside you. And that's why we need each other, especially uh, during those times. Jesus knew that. It's part of the reason that he came into this world as a man. Those three kinds of suffering relate to sin and redemption. They relate to sin and redemption. The first kind of suffering that can't be avoided could have been avoided. Adam and Eve did not have to sin. It was a choice. They made that choice. And God looked at them. He gave them a choice. They knew right. They knew wrong. And they decided to do wrong. And that's the suffering that could have been avoided. But immediately, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was the suffering that cannot be avoided. And that was the fact that God automatically, because God is God, reached down to Adam and Eve. Remember in the evening when, when God was walking through the garden, He called out to Adam, Adam, where are you? This holy God who wanted communion and fellowship with fallen mankind. Think about that. This was after they had sinned. God still comes and He calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? What God did before they sinned, before they made that choice, He did after they made that choice. In other words, God is willing to come down, come down where you and I are. He's willing to go that second mile. He did it in the garden with Adam and Eve. He did it with Jesus when He was born on that Christmas morning that we celebrate now. It's a suffering that could not be avoided. God never in His eternal mind ever thought that He would allow man to stay in his sin. That that gap would never be bridged. It was always His plan. And then the third kind of suffering that I talked about, that's the kind of suffering that must not be avoided. And that's the suffering that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Jesus did not have to die for our sins. He could have, if He would have desired. He did not have to become man. But because He knew it was the only way that you and I could be saved, this was a suffering that He was willing to not avoid. He was willing to take on that suffering. It was a suffering that allowed you and I to know forgiveness, to know what it means to be loved, to be accepted, to be adopted, to be God's sons. Let me paraphrase verse 9 for you this morning. If you want to look at verse 9, I want to paraphrase it. It's only logical that God, who made everything for His glory, in bringing mankind back to His original design, 
should allow Jesus to complete God's will by blazing a trail that all mankind should follow. Yet that which leads us to our salvation must be marked by the sufferings of Jesus Christ. It's only logical. <laughs> Ever thought about God being logical? <laughs> okay, four reasons why God came. Going back. Number one, we looked at to recapture our lost identity. Secondly, to experience our trials. Thirdly, to release us from bondage. The bondage that he is to release us from is not only sin, but the ultimate result of sin, which is death. In verse 14 and 15, we see that he came into this world to release you and I from that bondage, to set us free. And I want to look at it for just a moment. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. Let's go back to chapter 2. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. That's... You know, if you really if you think about that, that's a pretty powerful statement. Only as a human being could He die. Not as an angel. Not even as God. He couldn't die as God. I mean, it, it, as I have studied for this over the past couple of weeks, I've thought about to be able to come something that is eternal, that has always been, has no beginning and no end. I mean, have you thought about the transformation that just to be born into this world as a man, that, that God had to go through to do that? Only as a man could he die. I mean, you want something to meditate on and really blow your mind. Spend some time meditating on that this week. Think about God, who He is, and what it, what it meant for Him to become one of us. I mean, I, it's a miracle really beyond anything that has ever happened. There is, I mean, I don't think there is any, any way that we probably can really understand it. But it's really neat to meditate upon. The Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil, who had, who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying to the fear of dying. When Jesus died for our sins, Satan was stripped of his power in the area of death. It isn't something present tense. It's not something that's in the future tense. It's in the past. It's over with. It's done for. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, arose the third day, Satan lost his grip and his power of death and his threat and fear that he placed on you and I. And what a, what a tremendous Christmas message. We do not have to live in fear. And that's, I think, especially when I look at, at Thailand, when I look at uh, especially animism and their, their, their spirit worship, their demon worship, 
it is all about fear. And, you know, I think oftentimes we don't, maybe we don't think about the fact that, that one of the reasons Jesus came was to release us from fear. We are a people who do not have to live in any kind of fear. What a tremendous message. Tremendous story. And might deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. In other words, Jesus came and died not only for our sins, not only for us, but also to strip the devil of his power. Now ask yourself, how did Satan have the power of death? How did he get that? The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. So how did Satan, how did the devil get that power? Well, it's very simple. When you go back to Genesis, you read the account of man's fall. You read where the devil came to Eve and talked to her. And he began to talk to her about the forbidden tree that they were not allowed to eat or partake of. And remember what Eve told him? In Genesis chapter, chapter 3, it says, The woman said to the servant, From the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. You see, when God set the game rules out for Adam and Eve, He said, If you take of this fruit, you are going to die. So what does Satan do? He says, You're not going to die. You will not die. God really did not mean what He said. So when they ate, we know the story. One of the things that happened, the fall of man, was that death came into the world at that moment. Adam and Eve would never, would never have had to die. And this was all because of a wrong choice. They made a bad choice. But because they made that choice, death came in. And here's the prosecuting attorney, okay, the devil. He goes before God and he says, God, you said, you said... If they ate it, if they touched it, they would die. And so now here's, here's Satan. He's acting like a prosecuting before attorney before God, and he said, you said they would die. And he is constantly, constantly holding that above our heads. He pressed, he pressed the claim of death upon the Lord. And so therefore mankind, you and I, born into sin literally have the curse of death upon us. It is a sentence. It is a judgment. The gavel has already come down. We are to die. And so the prosecuting attorney, the devil, has constantly said, you said, God, that they would die. And he begins to use that as a club over you and I. And it happened all the way up to the time where Jesus died on the cross. So, how was the devil rendered powerless then? How was that taken away from him? Very simple. When he killed Jesus. <laughs> what a big mistake. <laughs> when Jesus voluntarily laid down his life, the devil thought it was the greatest day of his life because he had killed the Son of God. But what he did not understand was that when he killed the sinless Son of God and all of a sudden he lost his claim to death, because he had taken the life of one who had never sinned at all. He stripped himself of the power of death. He stripped himself of the power of death.
And when the Hebrew writer here spoke of the fear of death, what he's basically saying is that because we are no longer dominated by the devil, okay, he, he cannot go before God as a prosecuting attorney for you and I anymore. The fear of death over the Christian, the believer, the person who has a relationship with God has now been absolved. It is gone. We do not need to fear death. We as Christians, we know four things about death. Four things that are the reason why we don't fear that there is no fear of death on us anymore. Number one, the sting of death, which is sin, has been removed. It's gone. That's a fact here this morning. The sting of death is gone for you and I. And if there is condemnation in your life here this morning that says to you, is whispering in your ear, you're not worthy. You're a sinner. You're going to die. I want you to know that that is gone. The sting of death, which is sin, has been removed. That is the work. It is the Christmas story. Jesus has taken that away. Secondly, the judgment beyond death need not be feared. That's the second thing we know about death. The judgment beyond death need not be feared. Jesus has already taken that. He's already been judged. Thirdly, Christ's resurrection guarantees our own resurrection. Christ's resurrection guarantees that you and I will be resurrected in His likeness. Fourthly, Satan cannot touch us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Satan cannot touch you and I. These, those are four things that we all know because Jesus came into the world, born into this world as a man, as a human being, and because he died for our sins and arose again on the third day. Okay, the fourth thing, last thing. God came in the, into the world to restore us from defeat. God came into the world to restore us from defeat. Jesus came into the world of defeated mankind. We were lost. We were battered. We are bruised. And He came to restore us from defeat. I want to look at the priestly ministry of Christ as we look at this. Let's go to verse 17. We're going to look at verse 17 and verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 17 and verse 18. As we finish up here this morning. Therefore, it was necessary for Him to be made in every respect like us. Every respect like you. Like me. His brothers and sisters so that He could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then He could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since He Himself has gone through suffering and testing, He is able to help us when we are being tested. In other words, in verse 17, we see that Jesus became a high priest to satisfy God's holiness and righteousness about our salvation. He literally had to become, 
he, he literally had to come into the flesh to satisfy God. He had to die for our sins to satisfy the Father. That's why when he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And the Father says, it's not possible. It is not possible. Why? Because you have to satisfy me. You must, the sinless Son of God must die on the cross. Well, that was for God. That was to satisfy God's part in this. But in verse 18, we see that He came for you and I also. He came for man. For since He Himself was tempted in that which uh, He has suffered, He is able to come to the aid, to come alongside of those who are tempted. So every time you and I are tempted, every time you and I have trials, every time that you and I are going through difficult times when we are suffering, God who is walking alongside you and I, says, Yes, yes, I know what you are going through. I understand. I have compassion for you. Well, there's much more I could say about this, but let me wrap it up with, with just three quick thoughts in conclusion. The first thought is this. I want you to think about this as we think about Christmas Think about Jesus coming into this world. Number one, only, only, only Jesus can save us. That's why most of us are here, because we believe that. We know that to be true. And it is a message that we want to proclaim from the mountaintops, that only Jesus can save. The church can't save you. The Hebrew writer, his whole writing here was to tell them that the angels who they thought were mediators, could not save them. Only Jesus, only the sinless Son of God. Second thought this morning that I want to leave you with is that Jesus understands. He walks alongside you and I. He identifies with everything, everything that you and I go through. I've often heard heard people say when they're going through difficult times and they say to someone, they say, you don't understand. You cannot understand what I'm going through. And oftentimes that's true. I haven't experienced what, what many of you here have experienced. Many of you haven't experienced what I've experienced. And it's tough to identify with that. But we know that Jesus has gone through everything. There is nothing that you and I can go through that He has not already been through. So he identifies, he understands. Thirdly, victory can be yours. You need not have not only the fear of death, you need not have any fear at all in your life. Because victory is for you and victory is for me. You know, there's some unique things about gifts. I was thinking about gifts this morning and one of the unique things about gifts is it takes two people to give a gift. I mean, you can't really give yourself a gift because you know what it is. There's no surprise. So it takes at least two people to give a gift. It takes the one who thinks about you, thinks about what they want to give you, thinks about wanting to bless you and see the surprise on your face. 
because they love you, because they care about you. So it takes the person who gives the gift. And the second person is a person who receives the gift. And if you get a chance, I want you this week, read through Romans chapter 5. It's amazing what Paul talks about the gift of Jesus, the things that he says about the gift of Jesus. I want you to read that this week. I just read it again this morning. It's amazing. But what is a gift? I mean, any of you here, let me ask you this. Have you ever been given a gift any time in your life and you didn't open it? You just set it up and said, I'm going to keep this gift right up here. Anybody have a gift they've never opened? You do? You have a gift that you've never opened. But you knew what the gift was. (laughs) Well, can you imagine anyone being given a gift and never open it? I mean, if Kathy gave me a gift, and I was just all excited and said thank you and was so grateful and then put it on my shelf and never opened it, what would that say to her? I'd probably never get another gift. (laughs) Well, there may be someone here this morning I want you to know that you've been given a gift. God has given you the gift of Jesus. And maybe you've been holding on to that gift. Afraid to open it. Not sure of what's inside. If you don't open that gift, you're never going to receive that blessing. You'll never know what is really in there. And I hope this morning, as we have looked at Hebrews, looked at what the Hebrews writer says about this gift that maybe today would be the day you'll open that gift. And this morning, the praise band is going to come back up. Tom and I are going to be up here. Uh, Kathy's up here. If you've never opened this gift of Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity this morning. You may be a young person here that's grown up in a Christian family and you just, you've just pushed that gift away all your life. It's Christmas. What do we do on Christmas? We open gifts. I want to encourage you this morning. If you've not opened the gift of Jesus, I want you to have that that opportunity this morning. I do not want us to leave here this morning without giving you the invitation to come and accept Jesus into your life, to open that gift. Praise band, why don't you come on up and lead us in praise.